My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Basha Sokol and Arlen Doran. In 21st century North America, it's very easy to develop a sense of unions, even if you regard them positively, as being at a bit of a remove from what actually happens on a daily basis in workplaces. There's an extent to which this is an image defined by the enemies of unions, whether that is the perennial lie of outside interference told by employers whenever workers are acting together to stick up for themselves, or whether it is a mainstream media that rarely has any interest in portraying the struggles of working people accurately or sympathetically. But there's also an extent to which the labor relations regime that developed after the Second World War and the forms taken and choices made by at least some major unions over the decades have contributed to this image as well. However solemnly and strategically they engage in collective bargaining, however enthusiastically they might take up workplace issues during the life of the contract, however willing they might be when necessary to invoke the last resort that is the collective withdrawal of their labor power, the combination of the labor relations framework and the orientation of many unions tends to focus on legal processes and on service-oriented ways of supporting their members. And these can indeed accomplish some useful things, and can make a big difference to the lives of workers, but they're not the only way to operate. Some unions, in some places, continue to function at least partially on the premise that it is the organizing by members on the work floor that must be the basis of whatever strength a union brings to improving conditions for workers. Most Canadians who have heard about this year's negotiations between Canada Post and the Canadian Union of Postal Workers have likely done so via the national media. They've heard about the moves and counter-moves at the national level, the strong strike vote and the multiple moments where the employer almost locked out the workers, and the tentative agreement reached earlier this fall. Those paying closer attention might have caught wind of the continued rule of Canada Post by Conservative appointees, of the ambivalence of the new Liberal government to calls for a vigorous new commitment to public services, and of the looming specter of privatization that lurks in the background. What even the keenest of observers were likely unable to detect is that whatever ability the union had to reach an acceptable tentative agreement was due not only to choices made nationally, but also to vibrant, boisterous, and sometimes disruptive workplace organizing by rank-and-file workers in some crucial work sites across the country, including the depot where Sokol and Doran both work. Basha Sokol and Arlen Doran are both letter carriers who work for Canada Post, as well as activists in the Winnipeg local of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. Both have held a wide range of roles within the local at different points, though currently Sokol is the local's vice president and Doran is a shop steward. They speak with me about this inspiring example of workers exerting collective grassroots power in their workplace, the nuts and bolts of making it happen, and the vision of unionism it enacts. We spoke by Skype to phone from Winnipeg. My name is Arlen Doran. I'm a postal worker for about 12 years, and I'm a letter carrier in Winnipeg. 
And I'm Basha Sokol. I am also a letter carrier in Winnipeg for the last seven years. And I am also the local vice president here in Winnipeg. The worker-boss relationship at Canada Post is like no other that I've ever seen. I actually do a lot of training for health and safety with brand new hires, and that's one thing that they're very surprised at is the obvious divide between the workers and the employer. We have a very strong union, and it's very clear on the shop floor that there is an obvious divide. And the history that comes actually from the 40s, when World War II ended and all of the soldiers and officers came back to Canada, the government of Canada needed to find jobs for all of these servicemen. And what they did is they put a lot of them into the post office. But when they did that, they made the privates and the soldiers the workers and the supervisory staff, they made officers. So we have had almost like an army-like atmosphere in the post office since the early 40s. An example is if there's something that our employer wants us to do and then we're maybe refusing or saying, no, that's against our collective agreement, I don't have to do that, what they'll do is they'll say, I'm giving you a direct order to do it. And if you don't do it after your direct order, you'll be sent home or suspended nine times out of ten. So just little words even like that that you see that are used every day in the post office really show the relationship between the workers and management and how adversarial it can be. Going back to last year at this time, we were just starting to organize to get ready for negotiations because our negotiations actually started in January. I think we were in a good position and we always are coming into negotiations because a lot of the work floor is already aware of what the battle is, what the fight is, and what we have to do as a group and as a union. What does the work consist of? You come into work. So for myself, I'm a letter carrier, so is Arlen, so it'll be very similar. We come in and there's a chit-chat in the morning. We now have different shifts. They staggered our shifts so that you're not starting with all of your coworkers, you're not having the same coffee times and all of that. So you come in and you chat with those who are already there or possibly leaving for the day. You get your day ready, so you prep your day, you get your householders, which are flyers and ad mail, and you collect your mail, you retrieve it from a different section, and then you retrieve your parcels from a different section and bring it to what is called a sortation case. Now these cases are meant to be cages, they're about seven feet high. And they surround you, so only the rear is open, but it's not really open because you have a cart that's directly behind you. So you're kind of encased in like this monkey cage, so to speak, and you sort your mail there. And some of us sort our mail for an hour, some of us sort for three hours. After you do that, then you go and get your truck and you load up your truck. Or if you're on a foot route, you would head out in a cab and you would start your day and you would have a driver that supports you and brings your bags to a stop on the street. So you get out on your day and you do your deliveries, you do your rounds, you deliver your mail, your parcels, your flyers, and, you know, you speak with customers. And then for myself, in my day, I have an array of duties. So I do customer pickups. So you pick up their parcels and their mail. And then I also have what's called SLBs, which is the street letter boxes. So I clear those at 5 o'clock. And the very last thing that I do when I come back and I unload my truck after all of that is I have to do transfers. That means whatever items carriers return to the depot that are carted for pickup. So if you were to get a delivery notice in your mailbox, myself and two other carriers transfer those from the postal installation to all the retail outlets that are contracted out. 
we drive those over to all those little retail outlets and I come back at the end of the day and I clean out my truck and I clean out my sortation case or cage and head home for the day at about 7.15 in the evening. So that's what's done for a regular carrier, but people such as Basha and I, which are activists and shop stewards in the installation, we have to do all of that and then we also have to take care of other members problems if they need assistance from us. If they have disciplinary interviews, we represent people with that. Basha and I were, up until just recently, we're both on our health and safety committee as well, so we would have to deal with health and safety issues as they arise at work, and also just nuts and bolts organizing of workers. So, Coffee times, for example, or work floor talks? Those sorts of things, and maybe planning little actions such as I don't know. There's been a lot of them. And it happens all the time. Like for the last couple months, we've been whistling Pop Goes the Weasel because of a harassing supervisor. So one person will start and the whole depot will just keep it going and keep it going. So we try to organize little things like that to keep the members involved in the union and to make them feel like they can actually speak out in creative ways to the boss being basically unreasonable and deliberately breaking articles in our collective agreement, that sort of thing. So that's some of the things that we do on top of our regular job as well. So give me a sense of the kinds of things that have been happening on the shop floor over the last year during the course of this round of negotiations. What kinds of organizing and mobilizing and actions have workers been engaged in at the work site that correlate with and support the big picture of the negotiations that people might have heard about in the media? In our installation especially, we've had a lot of work floor actions. So a lot of people heard about the pay equity issues during negotiations. Our rural unit is female-dominated. It's about 68% female over the urban unit, which is about 70% males. And the pay equity issues are that the carriers on the rural end make about 30% less than the urban counterparts. That was a pretty major point in these last negotiations where it was mostly a female-dominated unit and they're being paid less. So we wanted to show solidarity and tell CounterPost, stop dividing us not only with the pay, but, you know, visually, physically. Canada Post divides their two bargaining units, so letter carriers and the urban units. We wear different colored shirts than those rural carriers, so the rural will wear red shirts and the urban unit wears blue shirts. It's very obvious on the work floor when you look and you see a red shirt and a blue shirt. Canada Post does a really good job of singling out the lesser paid female dominated unit. So we came up with a solidarity impact kind of visual statement to show solidarity and support for pay equity. The workforce started wearing red shirts. We did that locally, but it also caught on nationally. So there were other installations across Canada that were also doing the red shirts. And that was a really big statement. It was amazing when people were showing up to work. I mean, we had certain depots across Canada that it was on a daily basis that 100% of the depot was wearing red shirts. So you would walk in and you, as a new employee, would not even have a clue who is a letter carrier and who is an RSMC. And really, there should not be any difference because we do the exact same work as an RSMC, only the problem is we get vehicles in the urban unit, we get better benefits in the urban unit, 
and the RSMCs have to use their own vehicles and they get a different uniform and they don't get the benefits that we do. It's really a divide and conquer, which is really unfortunate. So the red shirts made it clear that no Canada Post, the urban unit stands with the rural unit. Another cool thing for me when we had that action, we work in the downtown depot. I think there's five depots across our city. We're the only depot that does not have RSMCs in our depot. So to see all these workers wearing red shirts when a lot of them have never even worked alongside an RSMC was really heartening to me. And especially to see people that you normally didn't think were allies with the union. Like, you know, there's some people that are like, oh, I can take it, I can leave it. And then you have people that are openly against the union. But that really shifted the spectrum over to us just by having people that have never even participated in an action before, being able to do something simple as to put a different colored shirt on, and it makes them feel like they're participating. That's how you start growing a movement. Doing something simple maybe at the beginning to get people to creep out of their comfort zones just a little bit, and then once they do that, their comfort zone expands, and then you can start pushing a little further and doing actions that maybe take a little more risk or put somebody out there a little more. So it was really heartening to see that happen. Other things that we did locally were just very simple things such as making noise. Our national union produced these tiny little whistles that could fit in your pocket, in your sleeve, anywhere, really. They were just these flat little whistles, but they were very, very loud. We handed them all on the work floors, and we basically blew whistles every time management gave orders. And eventually they gave in. They said, okay, you know what? Forget it. You guys have your freedom of expression. You win. So we did simple things like that to say we support our negotiating committee. We don't support management's direction of what's going on on the work floor. And a funny thing about that, too, is the Supervisors Association, the pattern that they've started showing in their negotiations is what they're starting to do is, for example, in their last negotiations, Canada Post wanted to take away their paid lunch. So how they negotiated that, they said, okay, fine, you can take away our paid lunch, but if CUPW keeps their paid lunch, well, and we go into negotiations, then they get to keep theirs. So they're basically bargaining off the, the strength of our union, right? So when we started doing the action of making all the noise, like pounding on our desk, blowing whistles, people had cowbells, like it was getting deafening in there. Supervisors actually on the sly started making noise with us. That was really interesting for me to see just being aware of a spectrum of allies in an office at any time. And as any organizer knows, that can shift to the left or to the right. It was really surprising for me to see supervisors. They went from openly chastising us and telling us to quit making noise to a couple of short weeks later when we wouldn't give up, they actually started joining in, which I thought was pretty telling of the situation at Canada Post. Another funny thing that locally was going on was Canada Post came forward with this global and then final offer, which was the only offer that it ever put forward. One of the asinine requests in there was to take away our stools. Now, we don't normally sit on a stool to sort our mail. We normally stand. But there are members that do require accommodation. So those stools are in place for those that might need to take a five-minute break to sit down between sorting their mail and whatnot. 
one of the things that was really funny on the work floor was somebody would yell out coffee time and they would tie their stools to their ankles and drag them to the lunchroom, which is across an entire work floor where you sort your mail at the back of the depot and the lunchroom is at the very front of the building. So it was a really interesting show of solidarity to have about a dozen people on the first shift doing that, dragging their stools across the work floor to the lunchroom because the employer wanted to take them away. That sent a really strong message, and it was so funny, and management got so annoyed. No more dragging stools across the floor. If you want to take them, then take them, but don't tie them to your ankles. What does the process look like of going from coming up with some of these creative ideas to deciding, okay, yes, let's go with this one, to making it happen on the work floor? Sometimes it's through trial and error, and sometimes it's tried and tested through history. Or sometimes you'll hear something on the work floor. Somebody will say something jokingly, yeah, we should just all start wearing red shirts. And something can start like that. It could be that simple. So it's not always a plan that's brainstormed in a meeting room and, okay, what are we going to do next? Sometimes you have to fly by the seat of your pants, I've noticed. You'll pick up on what you hear on the work floor and say, you know what, that's great. We're going to do that and we're going to flip it on its head and it's going to work. With the cowbell, for example, like Arlen was saying, we handed out whistles and people thought, forget the whistle, that's not ridiculous enough. So you let people kind of make it their own. You don't want to restrict people and limit them into how to express themselves. We throw out a general idea and everybody talks to one another in the depot. So somebody's saying, oh, well, you're wearing a red shirt and you're wearing the same red shirt. Well, I'm going to tie mine backwards or I'm going to make it my own. Everybody wants to personalize what they're doing but still participates. It's almost like it's competitive in a way. So as I said, with the whistles, people started bringing cowbells. So then it was almost like a one-up scheme, but like a really friendly one-up scheme where people started personalizing it and you grow on that. So you don't necessarily start with something huge. You start with something simple, like Arlen said, and let the membership make it their own. And it can grow from there and it can stem to another idea. When I was education officer and vice president, we did it a little different where the organizing committee, the communications committee, and the education committee all got together and we started having meetings with those three committees together. We would sit in a meeting room and we would plan actions like this, but for the whole city. But that takes considerably more manpower and time off the work floor to get that going. And you're going into other installations that you don't necessarily have the connections that you have if you're in your own installation. And that's what I really liked about this round of negotiations and the position I was in. I didn't have to worry about every other place. We just had to worry about our own workplace. And we already have the relationships in there. So we already know, like we go for beers with these people. We go to their barbecues. We go out for coffee together. So it's not like you're trying to get to know these people. You already know them. So you've already kind of mapped your workplace. And you know where the strengths are, where the weaknesses are, who will do what, who can help out with what. That's really important when you are organizing a workplace as opposed to trying to organize a whole membership. You can really concentrate on the knowledge you already have of your workplace. So we started with something small. It grew into something bigger with making the noise, that sort of thing. We'd go outside. There was one day I came to work, and there was eight trucks lined up at the docks waiting to unload their mail for the day, and they were all blaring their horns, like just 
constant. And there was a five-ton out there blaring his air horn. (laughs) And I drive back, and as being an organizer, for me to come back and see that happening just organically, like nobody told them to do that. Nobody told these workers. These workers aren't shop stewards. They're not necessarily activists in the sense of the word. But they just started feeling comfortable together that they, them together could do an action without being told what to do. And that's when you really know your organizing is taking hold because the whole workforce starts taking responsibility for it themselves. That's the really rewarding thing about being a shop floor organizer, seeing it come from where you are almost holding people's hands to them actually coming to you and say, hey, we're doing this, you should get in on it, instead of the other way around. So that started happening, and it was really encouraging. For this round, what we did is to include everyone. We started using social media. Like, our local has a Facebook page, and we also have a national page. And I've noticed that people are more and more interested on the social media and actually joining in, whereas somebody maybe wouldn't care before. In our installation for my station in head office, we started a WhatsApp group, you know, the popular WhatsApp app that you can download and it's free. And it created a networking tool for all of the carriers that work together in head office. What was happening is that people would have questions about negotiations, so that's how it started. It was a tool created to answer negotiating questions because it was just getting really difficult to answer and speak with everybody one-on-one. And people would start asking these questions, and then it would start spiraling off into a joke or some different question or a different topic. And what really happened in that WhatsApp group, I'd noticed because I do moderate it, is that people started connecting on a personal level. So even though you worked with these people, you might not necessarily know them on a personal level because you're working a different shift or you're leaving as they're coming or you're working in a totally different area. And as a letter carrier, work on your own. So what was happening is now people were saying, hey, is anybody in this area, does anybody want to go for break? Hey, my car died today. We had a carrier say, does anybody come through this part of town? Can they pick me up? It was just amazing. I didn't realize the power that, you know, setting up a group on an app through your phone would have. And so now what we do is we use this app to mobilize coffee times and to not only discuss negotiations, which is what it was intended for, but to connect. And now you have such a broader network of people that are organized. And like Arlen says, you'll have these things happening on the work floor, such as the horns, because they'll say, hey, shift one was doing this. We got a better idea. Let's do this. So we don't even have to organize everybody because everybody is organized and has an idea of their own. And we're trying to embrace that as opposed to just have one idea that, you know, we're doing this, whether you like it or not. Organizing has really become something that everybody can participate in by making it their own. It comes down to relationships. It comes down to people caring about each other other than just their jobs. They care about these people as friends and as colleagues. Once you can get into a space like that where everybody is kind of getting together, then stuff really starts to take off and it's a lot easier to keep going. And with any organizing campaign, there's ebbs and flows. It calms down for a while. It might ramp up. Depending on the situation, if somebody gets unfairly dismissed, well, it gets real sometimes. But maybe if management isn't doing anything and they're staying quiet, well, we're not going to be doing that, right? We're going to just go along and do our job. But it's been really encouraging to see, especially the new workers, get into expressing themselves and standing up for their rights.
As time went on, Canada Post just got more and more ridiculous, so we had to respond to that. There was definitely no ebb and flow. Everybody was on the edge of their seats in these negotiations because here we started off prepared for a strike. We had an amazing strike vote, like very strong yes, and everybody thought we were going on strike. And here our national was determined to keep us working and make Canada Post look like the bad guys. And essentially that's what happened because we kept showing up to work and they were the ones that threatened us with a lockout twice. So every time that things happen, the work floor and the membership just amps things up even more. So given the long history of postal workers being active on the work floor and elsewhere, what new things have you learned from your organizing and mobilizing over the last year in particular? Well, for me, coming from an organizing model where we sat on a committee and sat in a room and tried to work on the whole city with like 12 or 13 people for five different installations and a mail sorting plant, the lesson that I took is we need to like almost micromanage this and don't overstretch ourselves. All of these actions we're talking about that happened in the McDermott depot where we worked didn't happen across the city. There were some depots that made no noise. They did nothing. They just went to work every day, and there was no actions whatsoever on the floor. Our depot was actually the most active in Winnipeg during the negotiations and the possible lockouts and strike period. So the biggest thing I'm taking away from it is we just have to keep building on those relationships. And as new workers come into our installation, We need to make them feel welcome and we need to make them feel that they're a part of the group, no matter what their background is, no matter what their gender is, the color of their skin. It doesn't matter because we're all workers. One of the biggest things I've also realized is us as activists, we don't have to do it ourselves. And we shouldn't think that we always have to do it ourselves because we burn out. I have burnt out. So that's why I've taken steps back. And now I'm realizing that, yeah, being an organizer can be a very daunting and very stressful task because you never stop thinking about it. But now that we have so many different people from so many different communities helping out, people are getting together outside of work. It's made it a lot easier on everybody to sustain some of these actions that we had participated in. For myself, I was never big on social media. I'm an outdoor person, so I don't like being connected all the time. But I really realize and can appreciate the value in being connected now and just social media in itself. And it's really, if I go to another installation, people will come up to me, the the ones that aren't as well organized, and they'll say, what is the union doing about this? What is the union doing about that? Whereas in our installation now, it's what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? So they've taken a sense of ownership in their union. They are the union, and a union only works as well as its members want it to. And CUPW is actually different than a lot of other unions because we're not necessarily a service union. We're more of an activist-based union. Like all of our regional positions and national positions and local positions on executives, they're all elected. We don't hire staffers to deal with grievances or that sort of thing. We're all elected and we're all postal workers. So we've all done the job. And these activists and people that get elected into these positions They don't make more money than we do. And that goes a long way to keeping our leadership grounded as well. They've done the job and they will do the job again once they leave their position. You have been listening to my interview with Basha Sokol and Arlen Doran. 
They're activists in the Winnipeg local of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, and we've been speaking about their experiences of work floor organizing during this year's round of negotiations between CUPW and Canada Post. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>